Hello and welcome to That HR Podcast. Love might be in the air as we approach Valentine's Day, but today we're looking at slightly more strained relationships. Feathers will be ruffled and then tactfully smoothed back into place as we discuss conflict in the workplace. And as the Six Nations gets underway, we will also reveal some of the fascinating links between HR and rugby. I'm Lily Howlett. And I'm Siobhan Palmer. And today we're going to reflect our red, angry February magazine cover by asking, what exactly is your problem? Oh, that sounds a bit like you're trying to start a conflict. Does it? Well, luckily, we have CEO of UK Mediation, Dr Mike Tolbert here, to talk us through how to launder our language so we can handle workplace conflicts better. So hopefully I'll be able to phrase things more tactfully next time. Yeah, well, you're always doing it, though. I never do it. But we also have Let's Go founder Richard Watkins with us to help us create conflict in a constructive way. And if that wasn't enough scrumming for one day, John Slighthome will enlighten us about his transition from playing professional rugby to running his own HR consultancy alongside his predictions for the Six Nations. And Tim Pointer is back to advise another listener with their workplace worries in Tim's Pointers. That's all to come. For some people, a conflict at work is a cold, sweat-inducing, weapons-grade nightmare fuel to be avoided at all costs. But according to the CIPD's recent Managing Conflict at Work report, conflict is very much a part of organisational life. While it found that employers and employees are confident speaking up against conflict at work, when it comes to actually resolving it, there's still work to be done. And this is a conflict conundrum in itself. It's great that people feel empowered to address conflict, but with no clear route of resolution in sight, how long before that confidence turns into a war of the words? As workplace conflict is increasingly inevitable, Lily and I decided to learn from the experts how disagreements can be handled better and see if we could pick up some more effective techniques for dealing with office infighting. Joining us now is Richard Watkins, founder and director of Let's Go, a company helping businesses collaborate and work well together. Richard, you talk a lot about walking towards conflict and not being scared of disagreements at work. So um, Lily and I wondered whether you could show us some ways of navigating our own conflicts healthily. I mean, I think the first thing to say about, I mean, I focus on collaboration and of course, conflict is an inevitable part of collaboration, as, as we all know. And I think a really important thing is to think of conflict as generative not destructive that is it has the possibility if you think of what we're actually doing is we're saying me and you have conflicting views that means just different right so if we have different views and we don't get create a drama about the difference actually we might learn something from each other and so embracing a little bit of healthy conflict rather than again there's a kind of myth out there that collaboration is about always being nice and actually embracing a little bit of conflict is a way to get better ideas and to move things forward. Lily and I um, actually thought, so we think the people management team should do something a little bit different for our Christmas party this year. So we thought maybe you could help us sort of, um, you know, disagree about that. I mean, I, I've, I think that we should do zip lining for the, for the Christmas party. Yeah. Whereas I think in the sort of theme of Christmas, we should maybe go and meet some reindeer. Okay, great. No. So, 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 right. So this is a good example. So the first thing to do is if we have a conflict is to realise that so much of our opposition to conflict is really when we get triggered about conflict. So, right, if it becomes a drama and it becomes ziplining versus reindeers and we want some kind of fight or, or we think she's out to get me, she always says ziplining, but that's only because she's trying to undermine my good and um strategically brilliant idea of reindeers (laughs) and so i think often if you think of conflict at work the first thing to do is to work 
not with your intellectual system, uh, which would say which is better, but to work with your nervous system, which is more like, am I calm? (laughs) But a really important thing to do in this conflict is to make sure that you're not in your trigger state. And broadly, you can understand the nervous system as having two branches, a sympathetic, which is like a fight or flight nervous system, and then a parasympathetic, which is a rest and digest nervous system we know what it feels like when we're in both right when we're hyper (laughs) we're ready to like we we're either gonna run or fight and it's lots of energy and we also know what it's like to be calm maybe a bit more playful a bit more expansive the good news is you can actually alter how you how you are and one of the main ways you can do that is your breathing so when you're anxious your breathing gets faster or or stuck sometimes you hold your breath Um, And you can hear that, right? When people are presenting, sometimes they're (gasps) like that. But also it works the other way around as well, which is when you breathe calmly, you enter a calmer state. Um, A really simplistic way to think about it is that whenever you breathe in, you energize yourself. And whenever you breathe out, you relax yourself. (sighs) Right? So on a really simple level, something you can do, a little protocol you can do is you can breathe out for longer than you breathe in and then that will calm you down okay so we could try it now like let's say you're really anxious about your zip lining uh, uh reindeer battle we've, we've been saving this discussion for a while yeah. so we are genuinely a little <laughs> yeah exactly bit i can feel the tension in the room as well if the thing we have to do first is is again we can just do it really simply and you can do this yourself without it's not like um something you need to do in a special moment like everyone stop and let's do a breathing exercise <laughs> you just you if you breathe in for four and you breathe out for six so if you breathe in for four one two three four and you breathe out for six one two three four five Six. <laughs> Nearly passed out. <laughs> right. I do feel actually a bit, yeah. a bit serene though. If, yeah. if you do that for about four or five minutes, you will notice that that will bring you down into a calmer state. So that's a really good practice. You can do it when you're in a stressful meeting. You can do it live in a situation rather than something like meditation, which is also good for your nervous system, but it's something you do. It's more like muscle building outside of a situation. So we're nice and calm and then what we can do is um i spent a long time working in innovation um and there's a lot there about um building on ideas and so there's a there's an improv technique called yes and which is where you're always building on the other person's idea so for example you're saying reindeers and then we would say yes and that would be great and you're kind of really trying to encourage and build up that idea i worked for an agency called what if and they had a concept called greenhousing which is really like the practice of deliberately doing that with all ideas so you create a little greenhouse around a fragile idea so it doesn't get stamped on right and so in greenhousing we would build up those two ideas but the truth is if you're trying to bring about something in an organization it's also going to face criticism so we used to have this thing we would say on our innovation projects we'd say you know what sometimes what you need is to do shit housing and that is to attract a bit of conflict but in a calm way so we kind of looking at all the potential problems with the different ideas so really trying to kind of not in a mean way of course but tear down the other idea exactly and to throw stones at it And so what we could do then is we could start and we could uh, work with, let's say, the zip zip wire. And let's all together try and throw stones at that idea. Okay. Right. Bring it on. So and so you're (laughs) so it's really then you're kind of letting go of it as your idea. And you're saying, okay, let's just embrace a bit of conflict here. And the idea is that then we'll learn something about it. Right. So zip wire. Everyone could die. It's not very Christmassy. That's true. Okay. 
what's what's your what else could be wrong about the zip wire idea? well i suppose some people might not want to do it um why would they not want to do it people might be afraid of heights or afraid yeah. of jumping um, yeah just you know it's a high energy exercise is it yeah exactly so it's kind of well i so mean it's, it's, gonna, it's gonna be cold dangerous a bit bit cold now let's look at the reindeer idea i mean i don't want to get bitten by a reindeer what if i'm allergic to a reindeer yeah allergies it's for you what uh, would be reasons so to we not, have to kind of yeah um, you're like entering you know, into throw stones at our, our own, own idea, idea well. exactly this is basically the heart of it because we're trying to de-escalate my idea your idea we're just trying to throw stones at all the ideas um well, I suppose, yeah, there could be... You could get an infection from a reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> could be some kind of reindeer flu that could go around, like bird flu. We're doing, we're dealing with a slightly hypothetical example, but you can begin to say maybe another criticism of the reindeer idea would be, again, we've kind of already heard it a little bit, but maybe people wouldn't want to go there. Maybe it's far away. I don't know if it's expensive to go. Mm. So, uh, So you can start to play with these ideas, and you can do that, obviously, with different kinds of ideas. But you might get to something like... Well, what do we then, when we start throwing those stones at those ideas, what do we learn about how to make those ideas stronger? It's interesting. It does feel quite sort of um, it, like new <laughs> to get your own idea and say, well, this is why it's rubbish. Like, yeah. you, you're used to defending your idea and wanting yeah. to make it kind of successful. So it's it's a new experience. How do you feel about it? I, I feel a bit yeah, like I think... traitorous to my reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how do you get to a point where because obviously if you're throwing stones at an idea mm. is there a, f- a worry that you're going to get caught in this sort of neggy cycle is there's a lot of businesses that just champion positivity over everything yeah. else so how do you then turn that back around if we know that we're in it together like if we can look each other in the eye and say you know we're on the same side we want a good christmas party we've got different ideas let's and we could do the other side as well we could build the ideas up together but also like embracing a bit of conflict because let's say you're the Christmas party committee even if you two agree you're going to take those ideas to the rest of the team and some of them are not going to want to whatever one of those two you decide some people are not going to like it Mm. so part of it is about getting used to these uncomfortable feelings like actually what is it when someone tramples on my idea or suggests a problem with my dear and can I embrace that in a calm way and so in a way this kind of exercise is more like sparring for ideas it's not like a fight because we're on the same side and sparring in boxing is to prepare you so that when you go into the fight you're not afraid of being hit because again I don't know how aggressive the rest of the people management um, uh, team are about Christmas Christmas ideas but you can you can imagine like let's take it to a business scenario like maybe a higher stakes project people are going to be resistant to change or resistant to ideas and if you've already experienced what some of those resistances are you can say well actually we've investigated that zip wiring is safe we've found a place to do it that's warm uh, we know that the reindeers aren't in Greenland. We've got some locally. They're <laughs> hypoallergenic reindeers. And so if you like, then by attracting problems, you can then strengthen the ideas. Yeah. And then when you go out, you're expecting someone to tell you that they're allergic to reindeers because you've already kind of imagined it rather than only imagining a best case scenario. As we've discovered, thanks to Richard, inviting conflict is clearly important in the workplace, but handling it well is just as important. With us now is Dr. Mike Tolbert, CEO of UK Mediation, which helps companies resolve conflicts of all shapes and sizes by providing an impartial third-party representative to work through the problems. 
Mike, we've been shown ways of encouraging conflict and admittedly it felt a little unnatural to us, didn't it? Uh, <laughs> but, but can you explain how you help people disagree well? I think, you know, disagreement's inevitable where you get two people, two different people in the same workplace or neighbourhood or squash club or committee, um, you're going to get conflict. And it's a, it's a lively, energetic, useful, creative force for change and innovation, you know, so conflict is okay. And I think that's some of the, the themes that you've been covering already. But I think where we get people coming in with very different expectations or different values or different histories, either in a workplace or from previous workplaces, um, we can get clashes. Um, maybe a clash of values, maybe a clash of language, it may be a clash of expectation. It may just be some kind of personality clash, which is down to the psychology of the individuals that we can't really get into in a workplace. It's mm. something rather deeper. But what we do in mediation and what we do in conflict resolution, thinking about you know, encouraging healthier conflict, is one of the things we can do is very simply just look at language and look at how people talk to each other. And I think there's a few key things that we can address in terms of language that can actually unstick a lot of conflicts that would otherwise get really entrenched and really quite sticky. Um, one, one of the things I come across quite a lot um, is the use of always and never. Mm. And, you know, we and our loved ones, of course, would never get into arguments when we get into always and never about always leaving <laughs> the toilet seat up or never <laughs> emptying the dishwasher or never taking the dog for a walk. So it's where you get to. It's just an expression of anger. You know, I'm fed up with you and I'm just going to label you as, a, as an always and a never. So I think, you know, that's one of the things that we can very, very simply address. So like, if I could give you a little example. So let's let's think about... Um, Sarah talking to Tom. Okay, so they're, they're coming to the manager's office or the manager overhears a conversation between Sarah and Tom. And she says, look, you never include me in any of the office banter. You always say hello or good morning to everyone else before me. I'm sick of it. Okay, now where's that going to go? It's not going to go a- anywhere, really, because always yeah. is always and never is never. I make the assumption that nothing never happens and nothing always happens. So imagine you're the, the manager overhearing that. You know, So what I'd want to do is sort of uh, try and change those always and nevers and do what we call a little bit of reframing. So I'm not changing the language. I'm not interpreting. I'm not representing or advocating for either of the two parties in this conflict. I just want to turn it into something a little bit more constructive. So I might say something like, hey, Sarah, you know, you really need things to change. Uh, you want Tom to include you in office banter and to have a sense that he's treating you just like everyone else, including things like greetings and so on. Does that sound different? You know, does it sound a little bit more like there's a door open to some possible resolution there? Because you've got away with you've gone away from the always and the nevers, and you're looking at what Sarah needs from Tom. Um, so it's a good example, I think, of just a, a, a linguistic blocker. Always and never tend to be linguistic blockers. Lily and I have had our own conflict. We've been talking a lot recently about what we think the people management team should do for our Christmas party. Okay. Um, and we're we're pretty at, at odds on on this new plan. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, maybe you could help us. I've, I've heard you call it <laughs> laundering your language. Can you help us, kind of? Okay. You know, maybe find a resolution and stop. Being. I don't know if we're, <laughs> it, it, it being the first week in February, but you know, so it's important we get this right. Just we now, like to plan ahead, always. <laughs> when people get get into standoffs, when people, in general, people get into standoffs. I think there's a there's a few things that um, you know, a few simple things that we can address. I think one of them is about just the ways that we talk to each other using things like but. So we're having an exchange, and we're 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 sort of talking to each other in a way that uses but. Now, let me give you a phrase. Let's suppose I'm talking to somebody, and I said, um, "Okay, let me try and bring it around to your example." Then, what what's one of your ideas about where you're going to go for your Christmas do? Well, we'd both like to do something a little different. I think we should go and meet some reindeer. 
And okay. I want to go zip lining. And you want to go zip lining. Yeah. Okay. So you want to go and meet some reindeer, but you want to go zip lining. Yeah. Okay. And then hear this. So you you want to meet some reindeer, and you want to go zip lining. Do they sound different? Yeah. Now with a but, what you tend to do is erase everything that went before. So I've kind of discounted the meeting reindeer proposition by using the but mm. um, before I've turned to the, the zip lining proposition. So but tends to erase everything that went before. Yeah. And when you've got two people whose, whose ideas and whose aspirations are entirely, completely, equally valid in the room, you know, as a practitioner, I want to make sure that I'm not seen to be partial and that I'm taking one person's side or another. So if you came to me with this crucial dispute, I'd want to make sure that you want to meet some reindeer and you want to go zip lining. And then we'd look at what it is about those two endeavours that you would enjoy. Hmm. And possibly we'd end up with something that satisfied both of your needs at the same time. So the idea is the and keeps both sets of hopes and aspirations in the room at the same time, but tends to erase um, one set of aspirations and needs at the exclusion of the other. So when I sort of storm up to our editor and say, look, we really want to do this Christmas party. I really think we should meet some reindeer, but Lily wants to go ziplining. You've just discounted Lily's wishes. You're discounting me when you say that. Now, guys, look, I'm I'm very reasonable, but, you know... So So instead, I should try and say, we've got a huge problem. I want to go meet some reindeer, Mm. and Lily wants to go ziplining. I I can hear the difference, actually. It it, it makes it all both still sound possible. It makes me feel included when you say and... Okay, so we've tried our hand at some ways of making conflict at work a more positive and productive experience, and I have to say, I learned a lot. Uh, I've definitely been in some workplaces where these techniques weren't in use, to Mm. be honest, and I'm sure some of our listeners will have too. We've got Mike and Richard with us now to discuss conflict in UK workplaces more generally. Uh, Thanks for being here, both of you, and uh, thank you for teaching us ways of embracing and managing conflict. So we've talked a bit and we've learned a bit about different types of conflict and making conflict healthy, but when we're talking about positive conflict, how do you identify that? Um, If there's, for example, someone in an organisation that is attracting a lot of conflict, how do you know if that's a problem or if maybe that person's just actually being really constructive and having lots of ideas okay well well for me um in a sort of conflict sense i think it's about people having different ideas or different ways of approaching the same ideas so positive conflict can give rise to innovation and new ideas new ways of thinking about things a negative conflict mostly comes when people start getting into mind reading and expectations about what others think of them or expectations about others beliefs and values which are not necessarily accurate so when you get into that mind reading place we get into what we call projection and people start to infer other people's motives which are often negative second guess what other people are thinking or feeling um, and it gets into a rather strained situation where communication breaks down so i would say positive conflict is usually indicated by lively dialogue people having different opinions people bringing their different beliefs and values to the tables and coming up with new ideas negative conflict is where it's rather more tight-lipped and rather more tense Mm. when you get into a very tightly configured situation by which i mean a bit like a very tightly wound ball of string and there's no strands hanging out there's nothing to sort of uh, unravel it with there's nothing to loosen up the situation with so there's a sense you can almost walk into an office sometimes or walk into a mediation as i do uh, many many times and you get it just get a feeling of is this very tightly configured there's nothing happening there's no ideas being exchanged or are we in a situation where it's just a lively and healthy exchange of views and and once a conflict and i'm imagining kind of with your work often you're coming in when there's a full conflict i think 
one of the things that's interesting in workplaces is actually the other side is often a real repression of anyone saying what they really think or feel and and that's i mean even when i was early in my career you were talking about conflict aversion and i think i was always very i didn't i always wanted to be you know collaborative and work with people and i and i didn't yet see the power of actually just being really honest and truthful there's i was working with one of my mentors early on in my career and he used to be really happy to walk into conflict but did it in this really calm way and what he he used this phrase that really stuck with me where you go into a situation where someone said something and instead of going against the other person he would just be like that's really interesting i've got another view and then he would propose a very different version of events or a very different opinion about what was to do next and i actually kind of used that i kind of grabbed that phrase a little bit and used it quite a lot like someone's put forward an idea that i don't agree with rather than seeing myself as having to go against this other person i go oh i've got a, that that's amazing well isn't it great that you see it that way look here's how i see it and it's really different to that and so this i have another view is quite a nice tool if you like a linguistic tool to just actually unearth some of these differences because when the differences are alive it's normally pretty obvious if again if we've got good intentions for each other which are the ones that are going to live and which are the ones that are really going to help us because most people have got an interest in doing what's going to work or what's the right thing for us to do as a group or as a organization and 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 if you can air the alternatives then the sort of sunshine is the best disinfectant you can kind of see something of of what's needed so Mike, you help all kinds of different employers settle their differences. And I just wondered, what's the biggest sort of misconception or barrier that people have when it comes to workplace conflict? I think, it, un- unfortunately, in a lot of organisations, is that you have to treat it formally. Something's happened, you know, somebody comes to a manager with a complaint about a colleague or they go to the HR department because they're concerned about somebody else's conduct. Out comes the grievance form. OK, stage one, stage two grievance. Here we go. Let's record everything and speak to witnesses. Let's get it down. Dates, times, places. That's probably the biggest mistake that people make. And as a mediator going into organisations, I think it's, um, you know, mediation is a very, very simple thing. It's just getting people to have a chat. Um, but the And it's very successful as well. But where it fails is usually where people have either left it too long before they've done it anything about a conflict or they've gone formal too quickly. Um, conflict doesn't blow over if it's left unaddressed so the best thing to do to it as we're very much saying is, is walk towards it in a positive way with some skills with some confidence like Richard's saying you know it's that confidence of being able to go into a room to to pose a different view it doesn't mean that because I've got a different view that I've got it in for you or I don't like it um, so I think the biggest mistake that people make or the biggest misconception that people have is conflict is necessarily damaging it necessarily has to be dealt with formally and it necessarily has to be dealt with in a very win-lose way where somebody's right and somebody's wrong um, and my take on that is that nobody's right and nobody's wrong really and to come back to what Rich is saying about you know kind of favorite phrases or, or favorite ways of approaching stuff my favorite phrase as a mediator is you're probably not going to agree about what's happened up to this point mm-hmm. and I just love to say it and see how people's faces change <laughs> because they kind of the faces go oh yeah you're right we've been banging our heads together for 18 months trying to prove who's right and who's wrong and actually we're not going to agree mm-hmm. and i think sometimes it's it's the practitioner richard or me or anyone else setting up the right environment so that people can feel that they can let go of their version of events mm-hmm. the misconception is i have to hang on to that and i have to try and prove i'm right and that's the way to get through this situation actually if you set up an environment where you can let go of that your history without feeling as if you've lost face without feeling that you've um, you've compromised your dignity 
humanity by letting go of your your version of history, then that's a really good way to start to move forwards with a conflict. A professor from Kellogg Management Institute called Cynthia Wang, who did an interesting experiment, which was about, which kind of relates to that, but it, it sort of says something maybe a bit counterintuitive or a bit of another view than what we've been talking, which is that when someone's preparing to collaborate with someone, um, the way that they set up the experiment, they said, oh, you're going to be collaborating with this person and they're of the opposite political persuasion as you, than you are. Um, what that does is sets up some anxiety because they think, well, why won't agree with this person? But what's interesting is they actually saw more productive collaborations because both of those people prepared more, maybe with a bit of this anticipation that there would be some difference. But actually that anticipation that there might be difference or that there might be conflict can sometimes be helpful because if I assume that oh, we're the same, we're both from IT, we're going we're gonna to be together and actually then we do come up with conflict, we can be surprised and then that can take us into that more fight or flight response where we think we've been slighted or something because we weren't ready for it. And so I think this there's both uh, how you face it when you're in there, but also being prepared that it might happen and not seeing that as a massive surprise. There's another misconception about conflict that I have to mention, mm. <laughs> <laughs> which is that the, the symptom is the problem. So quite often what managers or um, HR practitioners, with greatest respect, um, will see of a conflict is just the symptoms, when actually there's something more that's going on. And having uh, mediated, I'm going to sound like an old guy here, but having mediated about 1,200 disputes over the last 21 years, I can tell you something that keeps coming up in workplace disputes is about tea making. <laughs> really? It, really. Um, so it's a very, very common thing. So um, a group of people in an office where one person feels that nobody ever makes me a cup of tea. Mm. Uh, a group where somebody will make tea for three, um, somebody else will make tea or coffee for the other four, and people start to read things into this. Well, why are they doing? Why are they only doing their teas and they're not doing our teas? Um, <laughs> a situation I worked with where somebody read volumes into the fact that an individual in the group would never accept tea from this person, <laughs> but would accept tea from everybody else. And he said, "Well, what's, what's that yeah. about? What? Why? Why have they got it in for me?" They won't take tea for, and she started to got quite obsessive about it and started to record, you know, make a little note, little mark on the pad every time she offered this individual this tea, um, and each time the individual refused it from herself, but accepted it from other people. Anyway, when it came to a head, it turned out um, that the the person who was declining the tea said, "You know what? I've said to you, I want a drop of milk, I want a splash of milk, I want a dot of milk, and you still go glug 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 with the milk." She said, "I, I can't stand your tea." It's <laughs> and that got to a mediation setting, all about the, the way they made tea. It's the symptom. It wasn't the it wasn't the disease. There was more going on beneath the surface, but this was the way that it popped up. This I, is the way it came out. I wonder I if have... that's uh, specific to British offices <laughs> yeah. in particular. I, I do have a foolproof uh, method for. Um, for tea making in the office actually that can can bypass all conflict and this is basically avoids you having to offer every single person in the office a tea it's that you always whenever you make yourself a cup of tea make two and then you come back into the office and you say I've got a spare tea does anyone Ooh, want it hey. and what happens is you get universal brownie points because everyone's like oh me oh but no one feels bad that they didn't get one oh, well thank you very much for having this discussion guys <laughs> yeah. you heard it here first to avoid conflict in the workplace be open about tea yeah. and make a spare cup With the Six Nations well underway and the people management offices based in the motherland of English rugby, Twickenham, we thought it would be a bit lapse of us not to mention the rugby. 
The problem is, HR and rugby, they seem like chalk and cheese. They might both involve a lot of scrums and butting heads, but the two couldn't be more opposite. Or can they? In 1997, John Sleithome had no idea that a future in human resources was waiting in the wings for him, as he played wing for Premiership Rugby Union sides Bath Rugby and Northampton Saints, and represented his country playing for England in the 96 and 97 Six Nations, as well as in international test matches. Since his retirement in 2004, John found himself at a crossroads. Unsure of the right journey to take, he founded a career transition business for retired sports people and began to dip his toe in the sea of business management. This led him to headhunting, recruitment and eventually people management. But how did it all click into place? And is there anything HR can take away from rugby? I gave John a call and asked him about how he transitioned from professional rugby to HR. I guess like a lot of people, not necessarily planning that journey, um, exactly in terms of the destination I was in 2004 when I actually retired from professional rugby I had a few opportunities to, to look at I guess what the biggest challenge is for a lot of people exiting elite professional sport is not the opportunity of not being there there are opportunities but it's which is the right, right door to walk through um, because mm. trying to replace what you've been doing as a professional sports person is, is very very difficult now and impossible so to try and find the right opportunity is, I guess, a challenge that a lot of sports people have. And, and quite shortly after I retired, that's exactly what I ended up doing, which was creating a business, uh, a career transition business, essentially, um, which was focused on working with elite and professional sports people through the journey to, to what, what they were going to be doing next post-retirement. And what you find with most uh, lean professional sports people, albeit it's better now than it ever was 16 years ago, is that not all of them, actually very few of them are planning their exit from elite and professional sport and bar the only, you know, the very, very top few percent of them, um, you know, are not financially secure and, and, and stable when they retire as well. So, they, you know, in other words, they have to earn a living. And, and it's an odd one because you get to your early 30s uh, in professional sports and you kind of peaked in your career and you peaked in terms of your earning potential, whereas people in... A normal career pathway they're just starting to really hit their stride in their early 30s so uh, that, that's really how I sort of fell into the people piece quite early I guess coming from a team sport coming from rugby always been sort of fascinated with I guess psychology of, of teams and what makes teams tick and how you get lots of different individuals together with different personalities and different traits to, to get uh, you know, to achieve a common goal so I guess there'd always been an interest in how this sort of you know, humans interact with each other. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was the first sort of five or six years post-retirement for me. I, I then went off into what we, you would call more traditional recruitment world and headhunting, which I enjoyed. And part of the reason for wanting to do that was to sort of expand my experience overseas. Um, I was approached by actually a client that we were working with at the time he was interested in employing sports people into their organisation and the DNA of sports people, which is quite transferable into into the business world. You know that resilience and you know work ethic, etc. That, that lots of you know employees look for. You've probably well, you've learned you know an invaluable set of skills during your professional rugby career. Did any of those like sort of seamlessly transfer into HR? Yeah, they did, and I think one of them was playing a team sport, particularly rugby. Brings in people from lots of different backgrounds. People from, you know, uh, there's an old say, an old cliche that, you know, everybody's equal when they walk through the door of a rugby club. And it's largely true. 
rugby has people from all backgrounds, all socio-economic backgrounds, all walks of life. You know, you'd be playing rugby with doctors and consultants and lawyers and equally guys who were, you know, putting a spade in the ground for a living. So there was a, a, a huge, diverse group of people. So I think those were the real lessons I took from rugby into the people world, into the HR world, because it gave me, a, a, you know, a real sort of leg up of understanding that there are lots of different people that can provide lots of different skills uh, and experience to an organisation. They might not all, you know, be the same personality trait. They might not all be the same. They might not all like the same things, but they all can deliver their part of what is, you know, the bigger goal of what the organisation is trying to achieve. And that's that's very much what a rugby team is all about. Everybody's got a different job in that team, and everybody every works towards a common goal. And, and that's, that, those are the major lessons, really, that you've got lots of diverse people with lots of different personalities and you can gel those, those individuals together towards a common goal. So it sounds as though what happened is, is that um, you kind of almost fell into HR. I, 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 I certainly in 2004 when I retired, I, I would have never turned around and said I want to be the HR lead of a, you know, a large multinational organisation, which is where I ended up being. But I guess I was very clear on my career goals at 19 and 20. That was about playing sport at the highest level. In fact, actually, my career in rugby sort of was half and half. I was half in the amateur area. And in 1995, 96, the game of rugby union went professional. So we, we became professional rugby players. But I'd qualified to be a teacher. So I guess going back to the question about why HR, well, the people thing goes right back to me being 17 or 18, knowing that I wanted to teach. There's a link there for me in terms of understanding people, educating people, working with people and, and getting people towards you know, achieving whether it be a business goal, a sports goal or an education goal. So there's always been that, that interest in what makes people tick, what makes people work and how to get the very best out of people. Um, and when you step into the elite sports environment, you find that you know, that is a, such a high level of you know, that you're working with, the type of people you're working with. And I guess that's one of the lessons that I learned I guess probably the hard way about going from sport into the business world as well is that in, a, in an elite sports environment, everybody is pulling out everything that they absolutely can to, to achieve the common goal, which is winning the game that weekend or going on to win you know, the championship at the end of the season. Everybody's pulling in the same direction. If they're not, they're usually jettisoned very quickly from that, from that group. I guess one of the lessons I learned early on in the business world was... That's not necessarily always the case outside of that elite sports environment. And I got frustrated on a number of occasions where people didn't have that sort of ambition. And, and it took a while for me to the paint shop to think, actually, everything's different with that as well. Some people really want to strive to be exceptional and push themselves in everything they do, like people in professional elite sport do. But not everybody's like that outside of those environments. So it, I quickly learned that I had to sort of accept that and understand that everybody's, you know, some people are happy at operating at that level and they don't want to push themselves any further than that. And that's absolutely fine. That's what people choose to do. Obviously, England lost to France, which I think we're all a bit a bit disappointed with, with the Six yes, Nations. Yes, we are, we are. By the time that the episode is going to come out, I think England would have played their second game against Scotland. Do you have any yeah. predictions for that game and obviously the Six Nations in general? Well, I think... Uh, I think England will bounce back from the defeat in France at the weekend. It was a disappointing first half performance from England. They came off the back of 
what had been a successful World Cup up until obviously losing in the final against against South Africa. Oh. I'm expecting to see a big reaction from England this weekend. Um, I think in terms of the overall for the Six Nations, I think we saw a, a really, really good performance from from France yesterday. I think some of the demons that France have had as a team over the last few years seem to have been put to uh, put to bed by their new coaching team, who seems to be getting the very best out of what has always been a very talented group of individuals, but culturally not been quite right, and sort of attitude-wise, and there's always been the, you know, as an English player looking at playing against France, you would always, you know, talk about how the French, which French side was going to turn up. Again, it's a rugby cliche, but it's true. Um, you know, that they have all the talent in the world. I think, I think they're. Having beaten England yesterday, I, I think I think they could they could go on to big things this year in the championship. Um, I felt before the games at the weekend that nobody would win a Grand Slam this year, nobody would go unbeaten. I thought whoever came out of the England France game on top would probably go on to win the championship, and I'll, I'll stick by that. I think France are going to be a real challenge and a real force to reckon with this season. And now we have the man who stops you HRPing on about your problems. <laughs> it's Tim Pointer. How are you doing, Tim? See, I you, you mentioned a harp, and immediately I'm thinking about having a pint. Are you there? So it's a case of like, you know, it's a cool, sharp harp. Anyway, it's a, yes, yes, very good, thank you. But suddenly thirsty. Oh, I was trying to, I was trying to tie it in with Valentine's Day with a nice little harp, ah, harp I and the cupid. See. I can see, We're, I can see what you're arrowing, arrowing towards now. Oh, well, shall we get straight to it, Tim? Let's do it. Okay. Well, we've had we've had someone write in with a problem here. I manage a small HR team within a mid-sized company. Four people report to me and six report to my colleague. There is a good dynamic in my team and we work together well. Everyone's friendly. Recently, one of the people our line managed struck up a romantic relationship with a new member of the L&D team. This person doesn't report to me, but they report to my colleague. Uh, They do work together on projects from time to time and we all sit in the same office. The person that I manage revealed this relationship to me as we have a good professional relationship and she wanted to be transparent. However, the company at large frowns upon employees getting into relationships, so she's asked me not to tell anyone else. I'm uncomfortable with this situation and not sure what to do. I don't want to break my staff members' confidence, but I also feel like it might be useful information for others to know about it. It could lead to problems down the line, especially in terms of preferential treatment or unprofessional conduct. I don't want to put either employee's job in danger, but I'm not sure how management will respond to the news. Please help us, Tim. <laughs> All this is... So, there are so many bits here, aren't there? <laughs> There's a lot there. So many bits. There are certain phrases that I just love. Frowns upon. Mm. Uh, so in, what does frowns upon look like? Does it mean we have a policy in place? Um, or is it just a cultural, oh, we're not a big fan of that? Because there's a massive difference between uh, uh, between the two. Um, all organisations should strive, and and vast majority do, to have a no surprises culture. We know if we do X, Y happens. Mm. Whereas if it's all sort of like nudges and winks, we don't know what the rules of the game are. Some organisations have very clear rules on relationships at work. Many of uh, our listeners will remember the case in November last year when uh, Steve Easterbrook, the global CEO of McDonald's, um, was exited because he had a relationship with one of the team. Um, So really clear protocols in place, breached, he knew X equals Y, he leaves the business. Mm. 
Now, if you're in that situation, then unfortunately our correspondence has put themselves in a difficult situation because they have been they have agreed it sounds to me not to tell anyone else mm. if we're more in the sort of like no one really thinks that's a great idea then it's more difficult to understand what the situation is here but firstly i would say we all as leaders have to try and not put ourselves in situations where we feel that we have a secret that puts us in a really difficult situation um anyone that um works as a mentor or a coach knows the word contracting where we're really clear at the start of a working relationship we're clear as to what's confidential and what's not mm. and it's the same in leadership roles we have to be clear there's some information which will stay just between the two of us but if there is information which is in breach of a company rule or protocol that we both know is an issue then it can't stay between us and i think this is where there is an awful lot of unease here and so and the, and just from a human point of view, all of us that have seen office relationships, since when did they ever stay secret? Yeah. Come <laughs> on. It's like, oh, yeah, because no one knows. The office knows. Trust me. As human, you know, as human beings, we are incredibly attentive to all the details. There is no way this isn't the source of office gossip already. So there's two sides here. There's the human relationship about how people are around one another. Mm-hmm. People are already already talking about this trust me and there's then there's the have we got a clear uh company approach to it that we need to get involved with and if you're in that management situation my advice would be go back to the individual and say i've given it some thought we need to work this through in an adult to adult situation because people are going to find out really quickly they're going to see you out and about together it happens i've had this at work with my boss dating someone in the team and get you know it gets very awkward very quickly and you mm. just need to get this information out quickly and deal with it quickly well i think that we're going to be able to uh, collaborate on our christmas party ideas a, a lot better now yeah we're going to take some deep breaths and we're going to tear the ideas down but be less personal about it and i think we're going to resolve conflicts in a healthy way that's all from that hr podcast today a big thank you to our guests richard watkins dr mike tolbert john Slightholme, and of course tim pointer you can subscribe to the podcast on apple podcasts spotify soundcloud or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts Keep up to date on all things HR and That HR Podcast on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to see your comments. Once again, I'm Lily Howlett. And I'm Shimon Palmer. The producer for this episode was Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.